a hand. Crystal is amazing. She oversees all of our volunteers, which is a job in and of itself. But in addition to that, she oversees our children's ministry. So she's pastoring our young people, and she's doing a dynamic job. Um, so we appreciate her. So this is our first week, actually, that we're starting focused specifically on emotional healing. So raise your hand if you need emotional healing. <laughs> and all God's people said. <laughs> Come on, if you live in this fallen world, we're all in need of a measure of healing. And it's one of those things that really from being in the presence of God, it's not like you get healed once, you're all saved, delivered, set free, whole, and then you're just healed for all eternity. It's one of those things that we walk in a fallen world, our feet get dirty, so we need to be continually washed and continually renewed and continually cleansed and experience a measure of healing. Um, so can I just say on the front end, to say that we're going to do four weeks on emotional healing is a really huge challenge because let me just say for every single person in this room, you have vastly different circumstances, vastly different histories, vastly different even measures of time that you've been pursuing the Lord and pursuing healing. For some of you, when I just said emotional healing, you're like, wait, I thought I came into a church today. I'm very newly saved. And is she going to give me a self-help course right now? <laughs> like The one, two, three is to how to be emotionally confident. Um, th- there's a lot of dynamics to it because we are spirit, soul, and body. So as much as your body actually needs food to stay alive, there's an element where our soul, and that's where our emotions is, that there needs to be healing and that we need to nurture and care for our soul. And so on the front end, I just want to say for every person that was like, I'm kind of more of the prophetic, charismatic stream. Are you going all Joel Osteen on me now? Like, it's your best life now. And I'm going <laughs> to, and I'm going to give you the one, two, threes of your success. No, actually, <laughs> um, what we actually really need to understand is, I don't know if you've, how many of you are familiar with, um, Dr. David Seidman. Um, but actually, he actually says he works with um, emotional healing, psychiatry, all of those kind of things. But in addition to that, John and Paula Stanford, anybody familiar with Elisha House Healing House? They're phenomenal. They're like the experts in the field. They just blow my mind. Um, highly recommend a book. It's called Transformation of the Inner Man. We're actually not even touching it during these four weeks because it's so huge and so vast. But um, but Dr. David Seidman actually says Satan's greatest psychological weapon is a gut-level feeling of inferiority, inadequacy, and low self-worth. And oftentimes, when you actually look at people that are experts in the field of emotional healing, inner healing, those kind of things, for every single person in this room, there might be degrees of depression that you deal with, there might be degrees of low self-worth, there might be... um, crippling fear. Some of us, I mean, my, my, my history as a child, paralyzing fear. I literally used to like see demons and be tormented by things in the supernatural. But I mean, to the point that I'd be covered in hives and uh, my jaw would completely lock. I mean, I had a very tormented experience in my, but Jesus encountered me and completely delivered me. Thank you, Jesus. Um, but we all have very different realities, but really at the core At the very, I mean, if we're going to bring like inner healing, emotional healing 101 right to the base level, it's really your view of God and your view of yourself. Fundamental. How do you view God? What is your image of God? And really, what is your image of self? 
And now I understand in the charismatic church, when we start saying self, all of a sudden you're like, I thought we're supposed to die to self. And, and I'm like lonely. And he's, you know, it's the neglect and almost to a point we understand what it is to crucify our fallen nature and all of those things. But we actually haven't understood that to despise ourselves, to hate ourselves, to have low self-worth, it's actually blasphemy to Jesus Christ and who he died for. You are literally insulting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because he saw such worth and value in you. And so where we've actually seen it as, I die to myself, I exalt him, I'm just going to say 101. There's two passages of scripture that really should alter how we view how to love God rightly, but also how to love our neighbor as ourselves. If you're walking around trying to be a better Christian, being like, I'm going to give my life on the mission field. I need to be a better neighbor and do more sacrificial service and think of others more. I need to be a better spouse. I need to be a better whatever. All of those things I can fundamentally say to you, until you get this reconciled in your innermost man, as far as your worth and your value before God, you are never going to be able to give or be a blessing to others because you're living from a deficit. So your answer is not to become a better person or to serve your, or even your church or your neighbor or any of those things. Your answer is before God almighty to have identity stamped upon you. And when you know who you truly are, you're living from that place. Jeremiah actually says, you've created cisterns. I'm the fountain of living water, which means it's the endless source that will never run dry. That's who he is. And instead of us going to him and receiving him as our source, so we never run dry. We never run dry of strength. We never run dry of grace. We never run dry of patience because we're drawing upon him as our source. Instead, we've created cisterns. We've looked to people, we've looked to jobs, we've looked to education, we've looked to a plethora of things to form who our identity and our significance and define us as who we are. I'm defined by this degree, I'm de- de- defined by this position, I'm de- defined by how many digits I make, I'm de- defined, all of these things are what end up defining us rather than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So number one, all of you guys are familiar. You guys could probably quote it for me. What did Jesus say? They asked, what is the greatest commandment? This is elementary, Christianity 101. <laughs> the disciples came. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Say it with me. Love your neighbor as yourself. It, it doesn't... Somehow, I think we thought it said the word was, love your neighbor more than yourself. Put your neighbor before yourself. No, 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 no. He actually used it as the parameter. He used it as the lynch mark. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you actually don't have a healthy respect for your identity and who you are and your worth before Christ, you're never going to love your neighbor. Never going to love your neighbor. And do you know in essence why that is? It's because you'll be living from such a place of low self-esteem and low self-worth that you're perpetually going to have to try to prove yourself, prove your significance, prove who you are, prove that you have worth because you're living from a place of not being fully convinced of that. So he didn't say despise yourself and love your neighbor. 
Reject yourself and love your neighbor. Put everybody else before you. He said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. There's if anybody here that's married. Here's marriage tip 101 for you. Ephesians 4, 28 says, so husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. He goes on to say, he who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished it and also cherished it. He is actually giving you, let's just, are we all aware that there's an epidemic of divorce in our nation? Are we also aware that there's no line of distinction between the church and the secular society as far as statistics and why there's failed marriage? What if we all took a very close look at this passage of scripture and the exhortation? And let me just say, this doesn't just apply to men as far as, okay, it's all on you, bro. <laughs> you make it or break it. He said. <laughs> I'm not putting that there, but it's as individuals that we are only, he's, he's setting the standard here that you are only able to love another individual from the place. He doesn't say husbands despise yourselves and exalt your wife above you. He says, love your wives, even as you love your own body. He goes on to say that no one can love his wife unless he loves himself. So let's just say this for all of you singles in the house (laughs) that are thinking that somehow your identity and your significance is going to be healed. And that fractured place in your identity is going to become whole when you find your mate? Absolutely not. Because the more broken you are in the place of your identity and your self-worth in marriage, it will only perpetuate that because you're actually not able to give to another. He's literally setting the standard here in Ephesians. He has said, husbands, love your wives even as you love yourself. And somehow we want to skip over these passages of scripture and we think it's the, the Christian like hate me club. Like I, I'm lower, I'm less than, you're better. Somehow if I just keep going lower and I'm going to perpetually serve you, absolutely not. You might try it for a week, but you will crash and burn. You will, because you're living from that place of a deficit where you've never truly understood your worth before the Lord and come to a place of confidence. Yeah, I just said it, confidence. <laughs> Because we all despise that, right? We're not supposed to be confident. We're supposed to be humble. Do you understand that really true humility is not necessarily thinking that you absolutely stink and you have nothing good to offer? It's understanding, you know what? I got good points and I got bad points. I got strengths and I got weakness. And you know what? I know the man who is perfect. So therefore, I am not caught up with my imperfections and my weaknesses. It's all okay. See, I don't have to be for you. I don't have to perform for you. I don't have to. And guess what? When you come to a place of freedom and liberty of saying, you know what? Some people are going to like me. Some people aren't going to like me. I'm okay with that. You don't have to like me. (laughs) When you can come to a place of understanding that your value and your significance is not in who approves of you. Whether they like your hair, don't like your hair. Whether they like your fashion sense or not. Whether you're top of the class, bottom of the class. The place of emotional stability that we come to where our emotions are not rocked by outward circumstance. Is we understand our worth and our significance before Jesus Christ himself. And no one else really matters. And do you even realize, how many of you guys have ever read um, Mike Bickle's um, The Seven Longings of a Human Heart? We were going through that in small group, and it defines 
the seven longings of every human soul, what we crave, what we long for, the longing for greatness. That's not a bad thing. You were created for greatness. All of those things. And as we were discussing it, you know, one of the things I came to realize is that the seven longings of the human heart, we're all looking to satisfy them somewhere. You have longings. You're created with them. The question is, is where will you have them satisfied? Will you have them satisfied in the presence of God, in your identity in Christ? Or will you seek to satisfy them in the praise and the opinions of other people, in your status and your vocation in life? The question is, where do you have it satisfied? And the extraordinary thing is that when we come to him as our source, when we have these longings satisfied in Jesus Christ himself, it actually gives us the emotional stability and the emotional reserve to then be actually able to give to other people. Because we're not living in such a place of, I need you to affirm me. I need you to praise me. I need to fish now for a compliment from you. (laughs) The focus becomes completely self. So this is the issue. I think in our minds, we've kind of thought, well, if you're overly confident, then you're arrogant and your focus is on yourself. The opposite opposite is actually true. When you have a low self-esteem, you're obsessed with yourself. No, really. Your perspective is, what are they thinking about me now? Does everybody approve of what I just said? I mean, you're living from the scope and the perspective of, I need people to praise and affirm me to make me feel better. It's self completely self. You're not walking into a room going, who is there that I can give affirmation to today? Who is there here that is in need and I can pour in my, my, in our house. And my son actually says it too. We call it your love bank. He actually will say, I poured into her love bank. (laughs) I'm like, maybe don't say that outside of these four walls. (laughs) It's a little creepy. (laughs) But that place, but instead you're living from the place of needing your love bank filled of such a place of almost crisis and need. So we actually find that from the place of low self-esteem that we live in that constant needing to prove ourselves and to almost, for other people, set ourselves up in their eyes that we are worthy of, of praise, that we are worthy of their affirmation. We completely lose sight. So this place where Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, love your neighbor as yourself. That we can actually never be an effective witness or even give and serve and minister the way that we were created to unless we have a healthy sense of self-worth. Now, there's actually four things that will affect our, be affected by where your identity lies. And we're going to take very quickly and look at a couple of passages of scripture. If you want to turn with me to Matthew 25, So many of you might be actually familiar with this passage of scripture. This is actually the parable that's speaking about the talents. Matthew 25, 14, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling from a far country who called his servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one, he gave five talents and another two and to another one to each according to his ability. And immediately he went on a journey. When, when he who had received five talents, so we have one man that's received five talents, went and traded with them and made another five talents. So what did he do? 
He had five talents and he actually doubled what he had. He brought it to increase. So he went and traded. He took a risk and it became an extra five talents. Um, Verse 19, and after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. Verse 21, his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Verse 22, he also who had received two talents came and said to the Lord, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over few things. I will make you ruler over many things and enter into the joy of the Lord. Verse 24, then he who had received the one talent, this is, if you haven't read the story, this is harsh right here. (laughs) So just prepare your heart. It's just the whole thing. Your mind just goes, what? Verse 24. Then the Lord who had, uh, oh, then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you had not sown and gathering where you you did not scatter seed. And I was, say with me, afraid. Say the word afraid. I was afraid. He was afraid. He didn't say I was wise. (laughs) He didn't say I was being cautious. He said I was afraid. And went and hid your talent in the ground. Look there, you have what is yours. He gives him back the one talent. And what does the Lord say? Verse 27. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him. So now he's actually saying, take that one talent away from him. And give it to him who has ten talents. For to anyone who has, more, who has, more will be given. And to he that has abundance, but for he, him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And then he goes on to say, And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's harsh, right? The key point here is this individual was given, all of us are given, potential, really. There's something that the Lord has put in our hand, whatever that may be. And what he did is literally because of fear, his potential was completely frozen. And that's actually what happens in our life. When we fear the rejection of man, when we are paralyzed in needing the praise of man, literally our potential becomes frozen. Because instead of running out and taking risks with abandon, and instead of us actually being willing to take those risks, we have such a place where our identity is so frail, and we can't risk failing, because failure becomes devastating to us when we have low self-worth. Devastating. And so instead, because of fear... He buried his talent. And that's exactly what happens to each and every single one of us when we live from a place of fear. Fear of failure. Fear of not measuring up. Fear of, in the eyes of other people, not doing it rightly or not, you know, all of those things. Number two, I'm actually, just for sake of time, we're not going to read it thoroughly. I'll give you the reference. Numbers 13 through 14. What do we find in Numbers 13 through 14? How many of you guys are familiar with the story of Joshua and Caleb? The Lord gives Moses a promise, right? 
He promises him. Like, let's take it out of biblical times because some of us are like promised land. I've never been given a promised land. Whatever it may be that the Lord has, you know in your spirit that there's something of potential and promise that the Lord has given you a vision. Maybe it could be for you. The Lord said, I'm going to give you the city of Boston, meaning spiritual authority in Boston. So we see Joshua and Caleb and we see the 12 spies. They go into the land. We all know the story. They assess the situation. They assess the land. So literally what they did is their observations were all the same. They saw the same thing. They saw the fortified uh, uh, forts. They saw the people that were there. They all had the same observation. They all took in the same data and information. But what happens? Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, come back. They have the same information, but they're saying, we can take this. We've got this. God's promised it to us, and therefore we can. What happens with the others? Instead, what do they actually say? They say, in our sight and in their sight, we are but grasshoppers. What kind of self-image is that? I'm a grasshopper. Just just a green, ugly, skinny thing. (laughs) I'm a grasshopper. So this is what we need to understand is this whole issue of really our perceptions of ourselves. how we, what did I start out by saying? It's how we view ourselves and how we view God. That literally there can be a promise over your life. There can be the Lord saying, this is yours. It's yours. This is your promise. This is your inheritance. It's not even a matter of questioning if God wants to give it to you. And the person that has identity in Christ is saying, you know what? I'm weak and I'm small and I'm a little pitiful. But because he said it's mine, it's mine. And I have confidence in that. But the person with low self-worth, they go to, we'll use the city of Boston again. Okay, I'm going to scope out the land. If the Lord says this is mine and if the Lord says he wants to give this to me, the person with low self-worth goes and says, it's too big, it's too hard, And it's too dark. And you know why? It's because they're assessing the circumstance. They have the same observation. All of those 12 sides saw the same thing. But it's in their perception. That's where it all changes, in their perception. And that's the issue with each and every single one of us. You can observe and look at the very same set of circumstance. Somebody with low self-worth is going to feel crippled and and enabled and powerless. Where somebody that knows their identity in Christ is going to be able to stand with boldness and confidence and say, yes, we can. Yes, we can. So we find, number one, that our potential is paralyzed. Number two, our dreams are destroyed because this was a dream in God's heart. This was God's promise over them of saying, this is what you have. This is what I'm giving to you. Number two, we actually find when we have low self-worth, it affects our relationships. Your relationships are sabotaged because of expectations, because of unrealistic expectations. And also, when you have low self-worth, you're highly sensitive. Like, everything just wounded me. And, oh, they forgot me. They, you know, whoa. Back the bus up. When your identity isn't in other people, for some reason, you're able... I know this is going to sound funny. Okay, I'll let you into my internal talk right here. When someone... If I get an attitude from somebody or, like, whatever... I'm never like, oh, they hate me. I literally am like, oh, they're having a bad day. (laughs) Hopefully the next time I see them, they're in a better mood, (laughs) you know. (laughs) 
I mean, really, if every single one of us, instead of taking it, like, I'm ugly, I'm stupid, I did it wrong. I, I, if you live from the place of going, hey, man, that's your junk, and you can keep it right there. If you want to come and enter the social party, I have a friend that with her daughter, when she her daughter has a bad attitude, she'll really literally go, do you want to be fun, or you want to go to your room? She'll go, fun, fun. I'm like, that's about the size of it, right? Either be fun and join the party or... <laughs> but this is the issue. It affects our relationships. And I mean, we don't even need to go through scriptural references. I've already gone through where Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love your neighbor if you don't love yourself. Jesus said to husbands, love your wives even as you love yourself. Your mar- marriage is going to stink if you have low self-worth. You know why? It's the me, 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 me show. I need more. I need time. I need, it's all about me and I got to feel my, no, on some level, when you're living from the source of identity in Christ, you're able to say, my tank has been filled in the presence of God. I have more than enough. I have more than enough resource. I have more than enough grace. And now I am able to give to you. I'm going to tell you when I am in a low state of mind, that's when everything becomes burdensome. My kid is burdensome. Oh my gosh, he wants me to wipe his butt. Can't you learn how to do that? You know, everything just becomes so like, I'm sorry if that's too real for you. That's the mom right there. No, really. I mean, the poor kid, he doesn't know how to wipe his butt yet. So then you start like resenting. The, you know, I'm missing out on all these opportunities, all these, all these things I could be doing. But you want to know something? When my identity is rooted and grounded and established in Christ, I'm no longer looking at my son going, well, I don't get to write the books and I don't get to go speak at conferences anymore and I'm missing life is passing me by. Instead, I'm looking at my son and saying, I know who I am in Jesus Christ and I know as a matter of fact what I am doing right now, God is greatly pleased with. So although the eyes of man may not see my significance, There's great approval upon my life because I'm standing in the place and stewarding what God has called me to. You know, I, years ago, I was like 22, we were doing a conference. It was, um, I think it was our first Nazarite conference, actually, that we did with Lou and Dutch. And, but long story short, I have a very good friend that he's had crazy prophetic words. Like if I even gave you the details about being president. And so he's gone to Pepperdine Law. He's done crazy jag legal stuff in the military. He's literally feeling like this is what the Lord spoke to me. So the end result is up to the Lord, but I'm going to prepare myself and go after it. He's amazing. But anyway, we're at this conference, and obviously, we all know my story. (laughs) I wanted to go to college, and the Lord was like, no, give your life to prayer. And I was like, oh, okay. So, like, (laughs) you know, I got him going to Pepperdine, like, total legal brain. All of my friends, I'm like, okay, give your life to prayer. Okay. So I remember him standing up and preaching. And he literally said, he said, if the Lord has called you to be a pastor, do not lower yourself to be president. Good perspective. And then he said, but if the Lord has called you to be president, don't lower yourself to be pastor. The issue being your individual calling is what gives significance before the Lord. It's not comparing yourself to the legal brain. I mean, he's a genius. 90% of the time, I don't know what he's talking about. But if I compare myself to that, I look like an absolute idiot. Like, and that's okay. (laughs) Because you know what? When we give ourselves to what the Lord has said, this is your territory to steward. Stay within. I bet you 
99% of us would be a heck of a lot more content and fulfilled instead of putting our hand in a thousand things of, I want to do fashion design. That used to be one of my things I want to do. I want to, you know, all these things I want to do. What is the one thing the Lord has called me to go after and give myself to it with abandon without comparing my success or significance to any other individual because it's before him at the end of the day. Let's just all be honest. You can get your name in lights. You can get your name in the newspaper. You can get you all these places. But at the end of the day, if you do not do the will of God for your life, you're, you're ridiculously unfulfilled. So regardless of the ideas and the praise and the opinions of man, it's what the Lord has called you to do. So if in this season of your life, the Lord has called you to be a mom, it is the most significant thing that you can give yourself to. I say it all the time. I'm like, I'm coding this kid for the rest of his life. I only have a very short window of time. Very, very short. And then he's going to be making de- decisions independent of me and choices that I have no. So I'm coding him in this season of time and going to give it all I have to see a heart that is tender and responsive to the Lord. So it affects our relationships. Number four, actually low self-esteem sabotages our Christian service. Okay, I gotcha. We're all kind of going, well, isn't it the whole thing? Like you lay down your life for others and that's what makes you effective. Let's look at Paul for a second. I love Paul. Love, 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 love Paul. (laughs) So this is what Paul says. For you see, for, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. So what's Paul? Paul starts out by saying, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. What's Paul saying? Because he's called. He's saying, I'm not wise, <laughs> not mighty, and I'm not noble. I'm okay with that. <laughs> he's literally, and then he goes on actually to say, we find Paul, he says, but God has chosen the foolish things. Here he is glorying in the fact that in the eyes of the world that he is foolish. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things. Here he is trumpeting. He's chosen weakness. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who, who became for us wisdom for God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And And as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in this. And I, brethren, when I come to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing amongst you except for Jesus Christ in him crucified. So what do we see here? Literally, oftentimes what we see is we see that we're weak, that we're not capable, that we're not qualified. So therefore, I cannot preach or I cannot testify. And we feel like it disqualifies us. We see as in our low self-worth, it's almost somehow it becomes a disqualifying factor for us because we see all of our inability. See, Paul didn't think he was like creme a la creme and so awesome. He could show up on the spot and bring the word. What it was is he said, I know my weakness and I'm okay with it. I know who I am in Christ Jesus. I don't have to be perfect and I don't have to be Everything that you think in your mind that I should be. He was okay in that place of saying, I glory in my weakness. That is healthy self-image. You know what the problem is when we have poor self-image? We want to portray to everybody like we're perfect and we have it all together. I'm awesome. I'm cool. I get it together. I know how to preach. I got this. I got this. 
Absolutely not. Like, I stink. And it might all fall to pieces, and I might look like an absolute buffoon. But guess what? It's okay. God still loves me, and I get up anyway. Okay, so you want to get a healthy dose of self-image here. Um, I think it was like early in the, this is funny, you'll like this. Um, it's early in the days of the call. And mind you, for those of you that don't know my testimony, I was single until I was 30. And so I just had a lot of opportunity to travel and make a lot of really awesome friends. All of friends that are way cooler than me, have way more books, way more status, way more image, <laughs> um, all of those things. So I'm one day at the call and it's, you know, Lou usually wanted me to have like open them. I come out, and I think this was the verse that I misquoted. Let me see if it's right. Yeah, I think it is. Um, so out of James, where it says, you resist the proud, but give grace to the humble. So you open up the day of the call with, you resist the humble, give grace to the proud. Yeah, I'm awesome. <laughs> no lie. I mean, come on, that right there could be, let's just be honest, if that were you in front of how many hundreds of thousands of people or whatever. But not only those people that I don't know and I don't know their name, but then you walk off and you shake Bill Johnson's hand and you shake Cindy Jacobs' hand and you shake all the mothers and fathers in the faith that you just exploded the call with misquoting scripture. But not only that, it was like completely blasphemous. I mean, just... (laughs) And then you have to get up and do like several more hours of that. (laughs) Got to get right back up there if that's going to be so humbling. Great. <laughs> but in no lie, I think it was actually Bill Johnson that when I, I was like, how'd that go? How'd that go with James that I just was quoted? And, you know, they all pretended like they didn't hear it. And I just said, you know, that's really kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> but you know what? I could have crawled into my hole. Been like, I'm a 22-year-old loser. What am I doing with all? But instead, of, you know what I did? I was like, yeah, I stink. And for some reason, the Lord's given me a platform. So here we go again. Let's see what happens next time. <laughs> Just get right back up there. <laughs> but that's the thing. The point being that when we have low self, self-worth, failure is devastating to us. Paralyzes us, cripples us. Because we were completely focused upon our performance. Focused upon our performance and also focused upon making sure we impress everybody else around us and that we convince everybody else that we are awesome. But when we realize, you know what? I'm not completely awesome. (laughs) I have my strengths, I have my weaknesses, and I'm okay with both. (laughs) That's the reality of it. So let's just bring this to a close here. The four sources that we actually have that we draw. So if you're like, okay, I can identify, I might have low (laughs) self-worth. I might not be, you know, bouncing back from failure and, you know, all of those things. In short, there's four places that we actually draw our identity and our self-worth from. Number one is our outward world. And actually, we're probably not going to even get beyond that too much today. But number one is our outward world. Number two is our inner world, like our inner thought life, what we meditate on, what we think about, the, the image that we have of ourselves. Number two, it's Satan and the forces of evil. I said it. There is a guy called Satan or a man or whatever. He might be, no, no, I wasn't. <laughs> Never mind. But yes, that is a real entity in the earth. And then lastly, and f- hopefully at the forefront, we receive our identity and our self-worth from God and from his word. So these four things are shaping us and molding us 
and giving us really ultimately a mirror for how we see ourselves and how we identify ourselves. Our outward world, what does that look like? I'm not going to get like really into the psychology of it as far as in the womb, you know, <laughs> like depending on our experiences in the womb, all of those things that already there's a measure of us being sh- shaped in our self-worth and our identity. Things that are spoken over us, whether we're despised, whether we're all of that. But let's just say all of us in the room, if you have a mother and a father, raise your hand. There you go. We all have a mother and father. In all honesty, from our earliest, earliest days, our identity and our self-worth very much comes from our mother and our father. And hear me, I'm not going to go on a huge blame journey here. <laughs> I'm not going to blame them. They stink. Nobody's a good mom and dad. Nobody's had to do it. They're all. But at the end of the story, we live in a fallen world with very broken people. So even our greatest attempt, because I'm going to tell you, I'm trying hard to be a good mom. Even in our greatest attempt, we are going to fail because we're not God himself. We're never going to do it perfectly. Never going to do because these are called human hands. They aren't divine. So when you get your hand in the mix, somehow it's not perfection. But with each and every single one of us from the time that we're young, we're actually getting the image of ourselves from our parents. I mean, that's right down to how much grace they had for you in mistakes. But that's also, for some of us in this room, there might have actually been a parent not present. So for some of you, you've actually had an inner vow. Like you've had a parent say to you, you'll never measure up to anything. You'll never be good at. You'll never succeed. And so you're actually living from an internal place of proving that voice wrong or from an internal place of saying, that is my life, that is my portion. But then there's a whole other group of us here that there might not actually be an audible voice that we hear or an audible voice. Because I'm going to tell you, many of us are continually living our life answering the internal voice. We're answering an internal voice constantly. So for some of us, we actually might not be answering an actual voice that we can hear or a specific word. It actually might be a completely a parent that was not even present. And it because of that rejection of not being affirmed and not being built up by them, that the, it's almost like the opposite is true. It's that need to strive for approval and for praise and to prove yourself because there was such a void of affirmation that was there. So the outward, as far as the outward affecting us, the extraordinary thing is, like I said, the inner world, Satan and God, they all are a part of that. But the most dominant thing for all of us is the images that we have from what our parents really stamped upon us in the place of identity. How many of you guys are familiar with Proverbs 23, verse 7? It says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. I want you to repeat that passage of scripture. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Literally what that is, is it's that your inward meditation and the inward image that you hold of yourself is actually what all of life becomes and shapes around. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So literally if you're walking around, I know this is going to sound so weird. and Everybody's going to be like, is she kind of new agey? No, I'm not. But <laughs> no lie, all sports when I was younger, I know it sounds so weird. Like my first time water skiing, I remember like visualizing myself. I'm like, this is how I'm going to do it. I watched everybody do it. And I'm like, I'm going to pull myself up. So, you know, I get up on the skis the first time and they're all like, I, they get, I get in the boat and they're all like, how'd you do that? How come every time we try something like you say you haven't tried it, you're a liar. And I'm like, no, I visualize it. I visualize it. I see myself doing it and then I do it. So no, not new age. It's as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If I'm sitting in the boat, 
literally going, I'm going to get out there. I'm going to screw it up. I'm going to look like an idiot. I'm going to shoot my leg. I'm going to be shaking. I'm going to be total failure. I stank. Guess what? I'm getting out there and I will be completely self-defeated. And I will do exactly that because the internal place of fear is going to determine my success. No, that's not new age. It's that Jesus said it. He said your inward meditation. It's even seen in this right here. There's a plastic surgeon that wrote a book. And he actually, it's actually a story in a book that Melina gave me. This plastic surgeon, what he, and he's writing a book actually on the interior image that we all have. And the reason that is, is because he was saying that people that have abnormalities or just basically aren't pretty people. He does plastic surgery. But his experience is, this is amazing. <laughs> These people, when they look at themselves in the mirror, they actually can't see the difference. So even though family members are saying, you don't look the same, you look like a completely different person. Oh my gosh, you're stunning. Your nose is amazing. That's like the perfect nose. You lost your massive beak. You know, all of those things, they still are sitting there going, I'm ugly. I'm, you know, I can't, they cannot see even the outward change. And you know what it is? It's because it's an internal issue. It is an internal issue. And he literally said that personalities literally take on, they affect your appearance. So when you're walking around kind of going, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I'm going to eat some worms. All of a sudden, it's on you. No one can approach you. No one can talk to you. You've got this fortified wall of rejection. Y'all hate me. No one's getting in. And then for some reason, you walk around and go, and see, I was right. They all hate me. Nobody... No, it's that place of as a man thinks in his heart, the circumstances of his life, you are fulfilling prophecy. You are a self-fulfilling prophecy. But then when we begin to understand our identity and our worth before Jesus Christ, that even if your mother forsook you, even if your father forsook you, understanding the identity and the purpose that he stamped upon you, it brings an inward place. An inward place, regardless of whether you're homeless, regardless of your, your income status, forget all of the outward accolades. It brings an inward place of stability and strength and identity that cannot be moved by the criticism or the rejection of man. You know, I absolutely love Isaiah chapter 30. I don't know how many of, how many of you are familiar, but in Isaiah chapter 30, it actually, it's speaking about how Judah, like the prophet is actually saying, Isaiah, he's saying to them, he's saying, don't look to Egypt. Don't look to Pharaoh for your security. He's literally saying, look to the Lord alone. And instead, Judah is getting confidence in their alliance that they have with Egypt. But you know what? He actually uses this terminology in this language. He says that in confidence and rest, there is your strength. And literally what it means, your confidence in knowing who Christ is and that you can trust him. And it's in that that you're going to find strength. I can tell you whether it's spending endless money on your wardrobe, whether it's driving a nicer car, nothing is going to bring that place of inward strength and stability other than being in the presence of God and understanding his approval and his affirmation and the worth that he's placed upon you, that nothing externally can change or alter or adapt that. I'm going to actually read um, 2 Corinthians 3.18. You guys are all familiar with. 
But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of God. And in Romans 12, 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Both of these places, we see the transformation, number one, of our mind. And this is actually what we were talking about, is our inward reality. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That he'll actually act out and manifest and display the inward meditations. But we specifically see in Corinthians that it says, beholding as it is in a mirror, the glory of the Lord being transformed into the same image and likeness. That as we are looking upon the Lord, and that's actually where we're drawing our identity and our worth from that place, that we're transformed into that place. But the more that we're actually looking at other people to gain our sense of significance and our sense of worth is the more that we'll actually be devastated and our emotions will be swayed by every opinion and word of man as opposed to the stability that we even spoke about in Isaiah chapter 30, that in quietness and confidence, that that is the place, the quietness and rest in that place of security, of knowing what he has spoken over us. I'm actually going to close out really quick with Matthew chapter 4, if anybody wants to turn there. So how many of you guys are familiar? So we have Jesus. He's baptized, you know, by John the Baptist. Then we actually see the heavens open, the dove that descends, and the voice of the Lord that declares, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then what we actually find is in Matthew chapter 4 is where Jesus is led into the wilderness and he's tempted. So let's look at this for a second. In verse 2, and it says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights after her word, he was angry. And when the tempter came to him and said, Oh, I'm sorry. He wasn't angry. He was hungry. <laughs> he was angry. That was me. I'd be angry. <laughs> and when the tempter came to him, nobody caught me. You should have yelled it. And when the tempter came to him, he said, if, here we go. This is what Satan says. If you are the son of God, he's questioning his identity. If you are the son of God. Isn't that like Satan right there? He's provoking him. Prove it. Go ahead. Prove yourself. Prove yourself. How many of us live with an inward voice that we feel like we have to prove ourselves? I'm going to prove myself. I'm a good mom. I'm going to prove. I'm going to prove. I'm a good mom. I'm really good at keeping my house clean. I'm really good at that. I'm going to prove myself. I happen to be surrounded by a lot of older men, like that are theologians and have doctorates, and so I'm always like the young girl, (laughs) mom, even so to the point that I used to show up with like spit up on my shirts and things like that. I can remember literally inwardly when I would feel that tension to like, I'm going to prove myself. I got to say something really like wise or either that I better open up my mouth and the glory of God better fall because (laughs) there's expectation here. I can remember like so many times being in circumstances and just literally taking a breath and just saying, I have nothing to prove in the eyes of man. I know who I am before God. I'm going to be it. You know what? Some of those meetings, maybe I never even opened my mouth (laughs) because I had such inward confidence. I could care less what they thought. (laughs) Do you have anything to say? No. No, I'm just enjoying. Thank you. (laughs) 
And I actually don't care if you don't invite me back. Huh. <laughs> I know. But honestly, that's that place of the place that we feel provoked to prove ourselves. To prove what makes you significant in life. What gives you value in life? Do you feel like you're constantly in a place of proving who you are? Or proving I'm good at this, I'm really good at this, and I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to make my case right now. So then... Verse three, it says, and when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command these stones become bread. What did Jesus do? He says, but he answered and he said, it is written. Number one, he was not provoked to act in any way. Instead, what he did is he quoted the word of God. Here's Jesus, the son of God. And his weapon to silence the accuser is the word of God. This is it. I'm just going to give you the word and I'm going to silence you. And then we see in verse four. um, So this is what Jesus said. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Verse five. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God. He didn't say, like, if you are the Messiah. He didn't say, if you are the root of Jesse. Like, you know, there was all these things he could have. He's going right after his identity as the son of God. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And now here comes Satan, quoting scripture at him. See, he's going to, like, twist it. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, it is written, again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Verse 8, and again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He's appealing to his ego. <laughs> you could have all of this. This could be yours. Do you all want influence? Do you all want fame? you want to be known? you want authority? All of those things. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall not, you shall not worship. I'm sorry. You shall worship the Lord, your God and him only will you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. There's a plethora of other things that we could really go into today, but what I want to do right now is I want to focus on Jesus's response as far as the word of God. You know, we're going to go through four weeks. We're going to identify our emotional makeup. We're going to identify that, you know, and I'll just say it to you right here. We started out by saying that most of us, as far as our image and our self-worth, it's shaped from how we view God as far as his approval of us and understanding his, our standing with him, and also how we view ourselves. What is our image of ourselves? But second to that, I can honestly say to you, I think all of the keys for emotional freedom, they lie in us forgiving people and forgiving ourselves. You know, because so many times you'll walk people through inner healing and deliverance and, you know, they've forgiven everybody under the sun. But when it comes right down to it, they can't forgive themselves for either even things they're ashamed of, things that they've never told anybody. And you know what it really comes down to? It even comes down to that self-image thing of if people knew who I really was, if people knew my inner struggle, if people knew it's that place of letting go of the places that we feel like we failed. 
But really in its simplest, simplest form, we actually find there can be degrees of healing that we can walk through in these four weeks. And I'm sure there's many of you in this place that have experienced degrees of healing in your life. But when it all comes back to the beginning, what it really comes down to is the presence of God and the word of God, because you can experience extraordinary freedom and liberty. But if there isn't a place where you're coming before him to be renewed, and that you're coming before him to be continually washed. I mean, those are things that just kind of heap up upon our lives. You know, a good example of this, in all honesty, my mom, um, uh, she's an amazing. I mean, talk about, like, inner healing, deliverance. She, like, would perform it on us as children. <laughs> She'd be like, okay, we're going to renounce this, and we're going to sit with daddy, and we're going to forgive him. And, you know, like, she was just forever fighting for emotional health. But really what that was is she came, she, she was first-generation Christian, and so she came out of, redonkulous. I keep telling her, just write an anonymous book because 90% of it, she won't share too much publicly. But if she writes like an anonymous book, nobody would know it was her or happened to her. But she came out of such brokenness. But then in her journey with the Lord, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I would come down in the morning and literally just find my mom laying out on the floor with just worship music playing. This is back in the days of like Hosanna integrity. Anybody back there? Come on, come on. I mean, just laid out on the floor, just weeping and crying and just, there was nobody to walk her through it. There was nobody to hold her hand to, in all honesty, in the presence of God of just going, here I am, I'm a mess and you have all my answers. She would just, as kids, she would walk us through. But most of you know, like even with my father, my dad, I would just want to say, if you meet him today, he's amazing. He's one of my best friends. He, I could never ask for a better father. But who he is today is not who he was when we were children. He, he was an angry, had a mouth that could just rip you up one side and down the other, intimidating, frustrated man. And we all went to church together. That was happy, you know. <laughs> you got screamed at in the car, threatened in the car, and then you all sit there with the fear of God on you like, Dad's going to backside me up the face. This is going to be awesome. No, just holy fear. Um, he's in criminal justice, in law. Like, he kind of deals with the bad guys, so he's a little jaded. All of that. Long story short, I lived with such a, an emotional prison, really, with my father. But I can remember there was, like, a prophetic service, and because my mother was in church leadership, they prophesied over our, our whole family. And I can remember this is what the prophet said to my dad. How awful is this? He, he prophesied and he said, son, God's going to break your heart. That was his word. God's going to break your heart. And I remember when he said it, I thought, yes. <laughs> that was before forgiveness. <laughs> I can honestly say when I got radically saved in the ninth grade, like really started seeking the Lord, I can remember one day sitting and like, you know, working through with the Lord, with my dad, all my woundings, all of my, because I went to professional counseling for it. I can remember sitting there before the Lord and just crying and all of those things. And I remember saying to the Lord one day, God, I don't want you to, I don't want you to break my father's heart. That's actually why he's like this. I want you to heal my dad's heart. And what it is, is when you release the people that have wounded you, when you come to a place of forgiving them, you no longer actually want vengeance upon them or for them to somehow suffer a consequence. You actually, in turn, are able to have compassion and empathy upon them. And this is kind of going all back to what we were talking about self-worth, is that when we're living from a place of deficit, all we see is our need. But all of a sudden, when you're healed, instead of me going, I need vindication, I want vengeance, I want my dad 
to be disciplined from this, all of a sudden from a healed place, it's now I can actually see he's a man in need of healing. And he needs your touch. And so actually what happened was, in all honesty, and this is why I'm saying there's woundingness. You've all suffered woundingness. The issue really comes down to our response to it. I hate to put all the responsibility on us as people because that just sounds stinky. It sounds like somebody else should pay and somebody else is responsible. We all have suffered various degrees, but basically we have to make a choice in our place of wounding of how we're going to respond. And I can remember it was actually that summer that I saw my dad and my brother fighting over like my brother's supposed to mow the lawn. He didn't mow the lawn. And I can remember, I literally said to the Lord, I was like, I'm going to give this summer to serve my dad. I'm going to put aside my plans. I'm going to make sure. So whenever I would hear him say, you know, I I need you to mow the lawn. And then the fight would ensue with the brothers and all of that. I would say, I'll mow the lawn, dad. I need you to paint the the fence. And then the fight would ensue. I'd say, I'll paint the fence, dad. I literally gave myself in that position to serve my dad. And I'm not saying I did it to earn anything, but (laughs) it did something in my dad's heart where at the end of the summer, I actually got a card from him with a significant amount of money. Not that I did it for the money, (laughs) never expected to be paid for it, but a significant amount of money. And then it was the first time in my entire life. He didn't say it audibly. I didn't hear the words. I love you. I had never heard that in the card. He wrote, I love you. And I can remember reading it and crying and being like, my dad loves me. My dad loves me. But you know what happened was, is I came, I stepped out of the place of this is my need and this is what I need. I came to a place of before God, releasing forgiveness and being able to see him as the broken man that he is. Releasing forgiveness and being able to serve him. Love your neighbor as yourself. I was able to love him as myself. And it was in that place. My, my, it was from that point, such healing and restoration happened in my relationship with my dad. He's a transformed man, not the same man. But um, just lastly here, our four responses. Number one, basically where we end up staying ensnared to brokenness is in Deuteronomy 5, the word of God says, honor your father and your mother, and it will go well with you all the days of your life. When we enter in a place that we don't honor our mother and our father, regardless of how wretched and screwed up they are, It doesn't say that you have to trust them. It doesn't, any of those things. It's not saying endanger yourself, but a place of genuine honoring. We actually end up binding ourselves in a cycle of being bound because we're not honoring them in a place that we remain in perpetual brokenness. And we almost invoke in a way, life is hard for us. Life is difficult. And it can be traced back to in Deuteronomy where it says, honor your mother and father. Matthew 7, 1 through 2, judge not that you would not be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the same measure, you will be judged back. This principle of judging that when we, no matter how wrong somebody's behavior is, when you stand in judgment of it, there is a place where judgment comes upon you. And so when we come out of the place of judgment and judging other people, what does judgment mean? It means accusing and condemning and being critical of their behavior and their choices. When we stand in that place, we've now set ourselves up in a cycle of bondage and captivity. Sowing and reaping, uh, Galatians 6, 7. Um, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, he will also reap. And then becoming what we judge, Romans 2, 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. It's the place that when we actually cast judgment. How many of you have ever said, I'll never be like my mother? My mother, and this is not my mother. My mother is not legalistic at all. But my mother's so legalistic. I never want to be legalistic. And in that place, you don't even realize that you've now bound yourself to that accusation. 
as a man thinks in his heart, so is it. It's a place where we set in motion, a place of we become emotionally toxic when we don't come to a place of releasing and forgiving and living without judgment. So what I want to say to us today is every single one of us has a story, we have history, but I want to charge us as a community of people to not use our history or our brokenness, our abuse, our family dynamics, all of those things as an excuse of why we are insecure, depressed, all of those things, but instead begin to say before the Lord, God, I want my emotions completely whole and completely healed before you. And so whatever part I'm playing in perpetuating brokenness, how many of you guys have seen it? You can minister to one victim of rape. They release forgiveness upon their oppressor. Their heart is set free. Yes, that is a part of their history. It is never going to be denied, but they do not walk with a daily reality of being in bondage and ensnared because of that circumstance. Next story, a girl, same exact circumstance, or even sometimes to a lesser severity, but refuses to release forgiveness. And you watch how it plagues their entire life in every circumstance surrounding that issue of violation and mistrust and abuse and all of those things. And you know what it is? It's giving power and authority to our oppressor. And rather than saying, I don't have to live in bondage and captivity, that there is a place of lead liberty and freedom that the Lord desires for each one of us to walk in. Let's stand to our feet. God, we thank you, Father, that you desire for us to walk in freedom and in liberty, that you desire for us not to in any way be in bondage to insecurity and fear and depression. God, we thank you, Father, that you desire desire from the innermost place of our being Lord, that we would understand our worth and our value before you. But God, that we, even more specifically, that we would not live in a, a bondage, in a jail of the fear of man and whether man approves or even um, will affirm us in who we are. God, I ask, Lord, as a community of people, Father, that you would bring us to a place of healing and even to a place of deliverance, Lord, that the past memories would not bind and hinder and afflict us. But Lord, I thank you, Father, that with salvation comes healing and deliverance and that you are a God that makes all things new. So God, we ask as a community of people, Lord, that any place that we live in the past, Lord, I ask, Lord, that any place that the voice of the past, of past brokenness and past rejection or even past failure is still accusing and condemning us. Lord, we ask, Lord, even now, Lord, I ask that for every person, Lord, under the sound of my voice, Lord, that the accuser of the brethren would be silenced. You know, there's some of you in this place that you actually feel as though God can, when you come into the presence of God, you feel condemned and you're more aware of your sin and your failure than you are the presence of God. And you think that is God. What you need to understand is some of the things that you're up against, they're not even spiritual. Has nothing to do with God, has even nothing to do with the spirit realm. It has to do with insecurity. And it has to do with this issue of your self-worth, of knowing who you are. It's your, own, it's your own heart even condemning you, accusing you, feeling judged and condemned by God when he's not judging and condemning you. He has nothing but love and compassion. See, what oftentimes we're looking at our sin, and God's saying, I'm not even looking at the sin. I'm looking at your brokenness that I want to heal. 
I just want to, right now, we want to pray for anybody specifically that even feels that place that they feel as though in the presence of God that it's hard for them to engage or feel God's approval in God's presence because they're more aware of their own um, like condemning, condemning voices and accusation, their own shortcomings, that that's the greatest awareness in your life rather than God's approval and his acceptance of you. If you just want to respond now, we want to pray, pray with you and pray for you. Jesus. Jesus. God, I thank you that your word says that we can come boldly before your throne of grace. Boldly before you. And God, we ask, Lord, that any place that instead of us coming boldly before you, Father, that we more feel ashamed to come before you. God, that we feel, fear your rejection and we fear your disapproval. God, we ask, Lord, that even today in your presence, Father, that you would do something supernatural amongst us. Lord, that your word would be spoken over our hearts. God, I ask, Lord, that for every person within this room, Father, that has felt rejected and even cast aside from your presence and they've thought that somehow it was you distancing yourself. God, I ask that today, Father, for the spirit of truth to identify and expose even the true source and the true root. God, we just thank you, Father, for the spirit of truth in this place so that you administer to us Lord, as we wait and as we bask in your presence, as we worship you. Lord, that you would heal our hearts and make us new. That you would wash us Lord, from words and memories that bind. And God, that we would respond appropriately to you, Father.
We're going to dismiss service, but if there's anything um, that through the word today that provoked or prompted your heart that you want prayer and you want agreement with, we're here to pray for you. Um, But if there's nothing, then you're released and we bless you. Have a wonderful week.